0: Stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that there is only one gospel that we stand in. So, God, we pray now that as you ponder those truths, that you would make your word come alive. And you convict our hearts that that is true. There is no other gospel by which we stand for Christ. We pray, Amen. <clears throat> well, good morning, Lighthouse. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Matt Powell, and I serve as the associate pastor for small groups and discipleship. And it's a joy to worship with you all this morning. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter one, verses six through ten. It's in the New Testament, right past. First and second Corinthians and just before Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. So Galatians chapter one verses six through ten. And I just as our brother encouraged us earlier, if you would please stand for if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word. Galatians one, six through ten. The author Paul writes the following I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. You may be seated. If you've ever studied the Bible enough, you have noticed how markedly different Galatians is compared to the rest of Paul's writings. Not necessarily in terms of content, but in terms of tone. And even if this is your first experience with the Bible, you can probably tell that in these verses, Paul, he speaks with passion, sarcasm, even anger. And what can make this letter especially harsh, almost unparalleled in its jarring dissonance, according to one commentator, is that Paul usually begins the body of his letter with thanksgiving or encouragement after his initial salutations, but not here. Instead, the first words that we get as Paul begins the body of Galatians are these words in verse six, I am astonished. It's it's shock, a shock that expresses disbelief, surprise, even anger, anger that moves Paul to, denou- uh, to pronounce damnation twice in verses eight through nine. However, Paul is not angry against the Galatians. He's angry for them. You see, for most of us, when we think of anger, our experience of it is largely personal and largely sinful. Your child doesn't do what you want, so you raise your voice in anger. Someone says something unkind to you at school, and so you spend the rest of your day quietly sulking in your room in anger, et So part of what makes this section so hard to swallow is that we often think of anger in terms of sin. After all, aren't we taught in 1 Peter that we're never justified in responding to sin with sin? And while oftentimes our anger tends to move in that direction, there are also times when anger is good. Particularly when it is for the sake of loving others and for the glory of God. Think of the times when Jesus is moved to anger or when God expresses his anger in Scripture. And I bring this up because it helps us to understand Paul's anger here in our passage. David Pallison defines anger as active displeasure towards something that's important enough to care about. So what is it that Paul cares about so much that it provokes his outrage? By the way, please don't see this section as being a pass for your sinful anger, no matter how you might try to justify it. Because we need to recognize here that the kind of anger displayed by Paul is rare because it is actually roused by the things that rouses God's anger and it responds in love as God responds in love. Again, he is not angry against them. He is angry for them. And the fact that you have this rare instance in which ang- human anger is highlighted in a good way should draw our attention to what is happening. So again, what is it about Paul's anger that is so important that scripture seems to actually justify Paul's indignation? It's anger over heresy about salvation and the person of Jesus himself. According to our text, it's the embracing of a false gospel, a false gospel that distorts a truer message and a false gospel that tempts the Galatians to desert a better hope. False gospels, in other words, serve as a threat. And for this reason, Paul is not angry against them. Again, he is angry for them. He cares for them because he recognizes the dangers that false gospels present to the Galatian church. Namely, they're turning away from the true message of Christ and a better hope that is Christ. And for us this morning, it means this, that our key idea, we must refuse false gospels so that we experience the blessings and truer, and freedoms of a truer message and a better hope. Two points for us today. The first being this. Refuse false gospels so that we experience the blessings and freedoms of a truer message. Now, to have a fuller grasp of this letter. It'd be good for us to review the historical context to it. Christianity began with Jewish roots, both theologically in the Old Testament and geographically. The first set of believers in Christ were Jewish believers from Jerusalem, but it did not stay there. As news about Jesus spread, and an increasing number of non-Jews, also known as Gentiles, became believers as well. And so for the first time since the Old Testament, God's people are now comprised of two distinct people groups, ethnic Jews and the rest of us, unless you are a Jewish person. But just like anything new, there were certain troubleshooting issues that rose. And One of these troubleshooting issues was the question of whether or not believers in Christ still had to observe the Jewish elements of the Mosaic Law, such as circumcision. And as Paul's earliest letter, it is this issue that is the occasion for the book of Galatians. Soon after Paul preached and ministered in South Galatia, a group of teachers were insisting that non-Jewish Christians observe Mosaic elements in order to be fully accepted before God. In other words, Paul wasn't necessarily wrong, they would say. He just happened to miss a few things. They weren't denying Christ, but they were saying that Christ alone is deficient, It's not that they they didn't accept Christ, but they were just adding more to Jesus. Now the offset, this might not seem so bad. After all, as long as Christ is the picture, as long as Christ is the main dish, so to speak, does it really hurt to have a few side dishes to, to fill out the meal? But when it comes to Christ and the gospel, it doesn't work that way. Listen to how Paul puts it in verses six through seven. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul is adamant that there is no other gospel except the gospel of Christ with which they received from Paul's ministry according to verse 9. In fact, anything different, any change or addition to that message, Paul tells them in verse 7 is a distortion of that gospel. And the kind of imagery that Paul has in mind is not a distortion that still somewhat resembles the original picture. The verb being used here means to reverse, to to change to the opposite. According to one scholar, it is denoting a a radical change as of water into blood, fresh water into salt, or feasting into morning, or daylight into darkness. And how did they do this? through their addition to Christ. As mentioned before, addition is subtraction. And this addition is a subtraction in the most profound ways. By distorting the gospel through addition, the false teachers were literally reversing salvation. Because if you have to add to the gospel, it is no longer the gospel. And if you, if you have to add to Christ, he is no longer Christ. One pastor puts it this way, Paul's fury comes from this, that if you add anything to Christ, you subtract from Christ. In fact, if you add anything to Christ, you not only subtract from Christ, you subtract Christ. But the gospel message that we have is so much better. How so? At least two things according to this text. First, the true gospel is a message of grace. It's not a gospel that needs additions to it. It is according to verse six, a message that proclaims the grace of Christ. Do you know what that means? It means that when it comes to salvation, when it comes to receiving God's favor, when it comes to what God thinks about you, you don't have to do anything in addition to earn it. Better yet, you are loved and accepted, not because of who you are or what you've done. You are loved and accepted in spite of it all. You are loved and accepted simply because God has chosen to set his love and favor upon you. And that's incredibly good news because some of us know what it's like to have to put in work for someone's favor. Maybe it's putting in those extra hours at work to earn the favor of your boss so that you might get that promotion. For some, you've tried to earn the favor of your parents by doing well in school, being, becoming that certain profession in order to make your parents proud. Some of you have also felt a crushing weight when you can't or you don't. I think that's why movies like Encanto tend to move us, right? Despite not being Colombian, all of us, I think, can relate to the film because we know what it's like to feel the crushing weight of feeling like we need to do in order to be accepted. And this applies not just to the main character, Mirabelle, but even to those in her family who have been accepted, Without spoiling the movie too much, in the movie, Mirabelle has a sister named Louisa who's just incredibly strong. And her place in the family is largely determined by what she is able to do, namely do these incredible feats of manual labor. But as the movie progresses, we begin to see that despite her confidence and her place in the family, she is plagued with a deep sense of fear. In the musical number, Surface Pressure, she sings about the pressure of being unable to shoulder all of these burdens. She sings, it's pressure like a drip, drip, drip that'll never stop. I'm not going to sing it, by the way, so just (laughs) heads up. Pressure that'll tip, tip, tip till you just go pop. Give it to your sister. Your sister's older. Give her all the heavy things that we can't shoulder. And then she says this haunting statement. Who am I if I can't run with the ball? That's a hard burden to live under to always feel like acceptance is dependent upon what we do. But what if that weren't the case? In the same song, Louisa, she flirts with the idea when she sings, but wait, if I could shake the crushing weight of expectations, would that free some room up for joy or relaxation or even simple pleasure? but what Louisa could only dream of in that moment is actually true because of Christ. Through Christ, we are freed from the crushing weight of needing to do. We are freed because God has accepted us through the sacrifice and grace of Christ so that we would be able to experience true joy, true acceptance, true freedom instead of the burden of having to do. And all we have to do is believe. It's to trust in that message is what we call faith. Faith, not only that God has saved us by his kindness and grace alone, but also faith that it's the same kindness and grace that will keep us in his love. Galatians 3, 2-3 will ask this rhetorical question. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? That's not to say that we can't do anything that we don't do anything in response to grace. More of that, I'm sure, will be covered when we get to Galatians 3. It's simply to make this point, because of grace, we never have to act or do as if that is the basis of our relationship with God. We are accepted and have a place in God's family because of, of Christ. Well, that sounds good, but how do we know that's true? Well, that leads us to our 2nd subpoint on why the true message of the gospel is so much better is because the true gospel is a message that is trustworthy. And we see this in the word that we might gloss over in verse 9. It's the word received. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. Now within our text, Paul doesn't explicitly list out what the message of the gospel is, but realize it is assumed. Passages like 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4 and Romans 1, 1 1-4, Paul will summarize it in this way, that Christ is the Son of God who lived in the flesh, who died for our sins and was resurrected, and that we receive forgiveness of sins, a right standing with God, and the gift of the Holy Spirit by His grace through our belief or faith. See, we just read the Apostles' Creed earlier because that is the consistent message of the gospel, one that has been received from the apostles, from the church fathers, and received by us. Through the ages, we see how God has not only preserved the church, but how the gospel message that we have received is reliable and unchanging, preserved and passed down from age to age. Even the Reformation, something Kim will talk about in October, though often seen as the origin of our understanding of the gospel as Protestant Christians, was in reality a recovery of the same gospel message that extends all the way back to the apostles themselves. Martin Luther, the, the so-called father of the Reformation, didn't invent the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. He saw that as a result of studying Galatians and Romans. He saw that it was the historic message of the apostles themselves. He simply received it, as do we. But beyond that, this gospel message is one that has been received, not just from the church fathers and the apostles, but from Jesus himself. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is not just a passage on evangelism. It is a passage that also reminds us that the message of the gospel is one that is received from Jesus himself. Jesus told the apostles, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. There's this divine chain that, that links the gospel we have received to the reformers, to the church fathers, to the apostles, all the way back to Jesus himself. There's so many reasons why this matters. For one, consider the fact that we don't have to fear. We don't have to fear that we have received the wrong message. We don't have to fear that God has changed what we've received or that there's more to it than we've received. In God's infinite wisdom, sovereignty, power, and love, he has given us exactly what we need to hear. I mean, can you imagine how frustrating it would be if we have to fear that God might change his message or how awful it would be if we were never sure about what God wants of us. We would not only have to expend ourselves trying to figure out what God wants of us, but God would fail to be loving and kind. God would be this fickle figure that we cannot hope to please and a fickle figure that we fear we might have disobeyed. Martin Luther struggled with this reality. As a monk, he had spent his entire life trying to live perfectly, never being sure if it was enough for God. And despite him, in his own words, killing himself with every act possible to please God, he writes, though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God. For some of us, you know this feeling all too well. Frustrated, killing ourselves to please God, even hating God. But the message of Jesus is a reliable, consistent message that has not changed, whether due to circumstances or our sins, and praise God for that because if his central message has not changed, it speaks to his unchanging character. And if you can trust the message, we can, it speaks to the trustworthiness of his love. And I think some of us in this room need to hear that. Some of you know what it's like to live in a household where you never feel safe, where you're never sure how your parents or someone might feel on any particular day. Words like, I'm sorry, where I love you often ring hollow because there was never a sense of reliability and trustworthiness, no matter how sincere the words might come across. But God is not like that. When God speaks, he does not contradict. He does not go back on his word. The gospel is unchanging because God is unchanging. The message of Christ is reliable because God is reliable. When God is trustworthy because God is trustworthy. When God says in the gospel that you're forgiven of your sin, that he loves you because of his grace in Christ alone, believe that there's nothing you can do to change that. There's nothing you could do to surprise him. There's nothing that can happen that'll make it a bad day for him. His track record proves true. For some of you who find yourself afraid, that just maybe, just maybe God might go back on his word, that he might change his mind. I want to encourage you to continue pursuing him. Because if you're not convinced now, that's okay. Because God is gracious and patient. And that too is good news. He will sit with you in your hurt. He will not be offended if you flinch. Because he is patient, he will meet you with his kind presence until day by day you are convinced by the consistency, the reliability, the trustworthiness of his message and of his love for you. There's another reason why this matters. It's because we don't have to change the message when we give it. Any fans of the Beatles in here? Raise your hand. All right, good. First verse, no one raised their hand, so I don't know. In 2019, a movie called Yesterday was released. And the entire premise of that film is, what if the Beatles had never existed? It's an intriguing idea. And in this movie, a struggling singer-songwriter named Jack is hit by a bus just as a global power outage occurs. After recovering, there's a scene where he's with his friends and they urge him to, to, to sing something. So he breaks out his guitar and he starts performing the song, Yesterday. But for some reason, no one knows about that song at all. In fact, Jack comes to find out that somehow the Beatles have never existed and all their hit songs are nowhere to be found. And so what does Jack do? Well, he uses that to his advantage. He starts performing and playing all their hits and passing them off as his. Now for some of you guys, that's sacrilege. Wait till you see what happens next. As the movie progresses, Jack starts to gain fame and popularity, eventually reaching the ears of British music star Ed Sheeran. And there's a scene where they're in the recording booth together, and as they're preparing to record just that beautiful song, Hey Jude, Ed Sheeran comes up with one suggestion. That instead of Hey Jude, in order to fit with the times, the lyrics should be changed to Hey Dude. Mark Hata, I know you're dying inside a little bit, so if you need to leave, that's okay. But there's this absolute look of horror on Jack's face, much like the absolute look of horror on Mark Hato's face. I mean, this is one of the greatest songs ever penned, and it's incredibly personal. It's about a father to his son, comforting him in the light of family upheaval. To even consider rewriting the lyrics from Hey Jude to Hey Dude, just to fit with the times would be this absolute travesty. And when it comes to the same, and when it comes to the message of the gospel, because it is the same gospel we have received from Paul, even from Christ, it, it is the same. We never, we never have to change that message to fit with the times. To do so would be more than a travesty. That's not to say that we don't seek to um, seek to share it in relevant, fresh ways so it addresses the particular idols of our culture. It's simply to say that when it comes to the message itself, we rinse and repeat. Church, we are tasked to go forth and proclaim the gospel in every time, every place, to every people. And that is an incredibly daunting task when you consider the complexity of sins and struggles of the world. But what an encouragement it is to know that as complicated as the task might feel, the message has stayed the same. It is a grace to us that despite the myriad sicknesses, diseases, and issues that plague people, it is one cure that remedies So we need not come up with a new message with every passing season. We need not add more to the message so that you can keep up with the times. We need not create a new message for various struggles. We are freed to simply proclaim one message that has been the same. The message that according to Paul in verses 8-9 through was the one that we preached to you, the one that Lighthouse you have received. And in church, when we're convicted by that, by nature, it will simplify the ultimate aim of our sharing, pleasing God. Verse 10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And pleasing others is a tiresome task. As a father of three, I'm reminded of that whenever I ask my children what TV show they want to watch. On the contrary, what a merciful grace it is to know that in my proclamation of the gospel, I only need to please God. I'm not burdened by the need to be liked. I'm not swayed left and right by the approval of others. I can, I can proclaim the old, old story of the gospel simply because I desire to please God simply. I can proclaim the old, old story of the gospel truly because it is God's approval that matters most truly. Church, do you see now why Paul is so angry? He's not angry against the Galatians. He is angry for them. By embracing a false gospel, they are not only embracing falsehood, they are also missing out on the blessings and freedoms that come with this one true gospel message. And with that, they are also suckered into into missing out on something else, which brings us to our second point. Refuse false gospels so that we experience the blessings and freedoms of a better hope. One of the unique things about this passage is Paul's conceptualization of the gospel. On one hand, he makes it clear, according to verse 7, that there is only one true gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we saw earlier, proclaims his life, death, resurrection, and the subsequent benefits that we received by grace through faith in Jesus. But on the other hand, Paul seems to recognize that there are other gospels that contend for our allegiance and affections, which is why Paul is moved to anger. Because it's precisely those other gospels that have tempted the Galatians to deserting Christ and turning to a different gospel in verse six. So what is it about these other gospels that tempt the Galatians? Well, consider the word gospel. Paul could have used any other noun to describe the things which contend for our allegiance and affections, but he he could have used the word idol, a word that we often use here at Lighthouse. But he chooses to use the word gospel instead. Why? Well, for one, it reminds us that the things that contend for our hearts are much more insidious and crafty than we realize. I think that's partly why Paul would say in verse 8 that if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Because rarely is it as obvious or as blatant as we think but two, because Paul understands that what tempts us to forsake Christ is the promise of something better. Think about the word gospel. If you've been at church long enough, then most of us know that the word means good what? News, right? Good news. And that's definitely what it means, but, but let's do a thought experiment, okay? When you think good news, what pops into your head? If you're anything like me, we are accustomed to equating gospel or good news with the specific message of Christ. Am I right? But this morning, I want us to try to broaden that phrase, good news, beyond what we're normally used to. So let's try this thought experiment instead. Imagine you are sitting at your favorite coffee shop, sipping on your favorite drink, when all of a sudden you hear that familiar ding on your phone. And you look down, and it's a text message from your, fr- your, from your parents, your siblings, your spouse, maybe even your best friend and says this, good news? What would be going on through your mind? For some of us, maybe it's confusion, but for some of us, it might be the hope of a birth announcement, the hope of a positive diagnosis, the hope that you've been accepted into your dream school. maybe the hope that you've been offered a job. What would bring good news to your heart in that moment? What would bring good news to your heart right now? And just take a moment to think about that. If you were to keep it a buck, if you were 100% with yourself, honest with yourself, as of this moment, what would bring good news to your heart? What would bring you peace, happiness, or joy? What would bring you that one good break that that you hope for? Let me be honest with you. As I've grown in my season of fatherhood, I've grown in increasingly greater love for my wife and three children. I found myself wanting more for them. And this morning, I'm in good company because I know there are many fathers here who likewise feel the same way. And you are examples to me. But I've also come to feel the pressure of wanting more for my children. It's not easy. It's no secret that living in Southern California is not easy. And it only seems to get more difficult. And as a father, that that weighs on me. I'm tempted to believe that the measure of a good father is one who can give them a house with a backyard for my kids to play in. I'm tempted to believe that the measure of a good father is one who can give our children an inheritance so they might be okay long after I'm gone. And so when I ask this question, what brings good news to my heart? My answers have largely been a forever home for my kids to grow up in. Enough money so that I know they'll be taken care of. And don't get me wrong, none of this is bad. But I'm also convicted that this pa- from this passage that of these are the things that my heart longs after, and they are false gospels who threaten to turn me away from a better hope. We've often used this quote, and I think it's appropriate that we refer to this again. But John Piper writes, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. And if these things are the things that threaten to turn us away and desert Christ, then we need to take these things with utmost seriousness and with the utmost severity. That's why in verse eight, Paul tells us that if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Well, what does that mean? The word that Paul uses for accursed is the word anathema. Originally used to refer to any object set aside for divine purposes, whether blessing or curses, the negative sense of that meaning prevailed over time. In every instance that it is used in the New Testament, it carries the idea of being delivered over to God's judgment, a wrath for judgment. Throughout church history, it becomes a standard pronouncement upon notorious heretics, much like the way Paul uses it here, but it means more than excommunication. I want you to for a moment to consider the theme of curse in scripture. And just to be upfront, so much of what I'm about to say has been greatly helped by the late R.C. Sproul, who preached a message entitled The Curse Motif of the Atonement in 2008. So what does it mean to be cursed? Well, consider that the famous Hebrew benediction in the Old Testament found in number six. It's one that we've probably used at the end of our services as a way of asking for God's blessing and kindness on us as we conclude. It goes like this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. For for, for a Jew to be blessed by God was to experience and be bathed in the shining glory of God and the shining glory that emanates from God's face. This is what Moses begs of God in Exodus 33, when he asks God, please show me your face. He wanted to see God's face. Why? Because there's no expression of greater intimacy and closeness than to see God face to face. And I think we get that, especially for some of you who are older and married, It isn't so much the case anymore, but it used to be customary that during a wedding, the bride would stand there with her face covered by a veil. And throughout the ceremony, her face would remain covered by that veil. So when does that veil finally get removed? It gets removed in the greatest moment of intimacy in the ceremony, when the groom is given permission to kiss his bride. This was the hope of every Jew. To see God face to face just once, and it's also the hope of the New Testament. 1 John three two tells us, "Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, as we when He appears, we will be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. There will come a day when we get to see God." face to face. The things which separate us now, which keep us from seeing him in full glory, such as our sin, will be no longer. And there will be this intimacy between us that we can only long for this side of heaven. We will be closer to him than we ever thought possible. And we, in that moment, will be truly blessed. But if that is what blessing is, consider then what cursing is and what it means to be accursed. It is the polar opposite. If supreme blessing is intimacy with God, then supreme cursing is being cast out by God. If supreme blessing is to behold him face to face, supreme cursing is him saying, I never want to see you again. If the supreme blessing sounds like number six, then the supreme cursing would be this, according to R.C. Sproul. May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without grace. May the Lord turn his back upon you and remove his peace from you forever. Beloved, that is what is being communicated here. Anathema. For the sake of those who are younger and for the sake of not stumbling you, there are a variety of ways that we could communicate the weight of this word. I will not say any of them, but I'd imagine that if I did say such a vulgar phrase on this pulpit, a number of you would feel incredibly uncomfortable and for good reason. Because this is the weight that this word carries. It is according to one scholar, one of the harshest statements in the entire New Testament. It is a word that is never thrown around or used lightly. And so for Paul to use this word tells us just how serious this issue is and uses this not just once, But twice, verse nine, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be anathema. Paul has chosen his words carefully. He has pondered over what words would be suitable to describe the intense indignation he has, not against, but for the Galatians. As he comes to the end of his vocabulary, there's only one word suitable, a word that he hesitates to utter, a word that we should dare not utter, and he does it twice, anathema. Let's not take that lightly. Whatever it is that brings you good news in that moment, does it whisper a truer message than the gospel of Christ? Does it turn you away from and tempt you to desert Christ? But you see, the thing about this passage is that Paul has not given up on his Galatian readers just yet. And while this passage might seem as if Paul is overly harsh, there is more grace than we see. He realizes that though they are deserting him and turning to a different gospel, that is not the same as having already deserted him or having already turned to a different gospel. In other words, there there is hope, a hope that Paul expresses to the Galatians later in Galatians 5 and Galatians 6. When he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. in Galatians 6, let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season, if we, well, we will reap if we do not give up. And why can Paul have this hope? Because later in Galatians 3.13, Paul will write, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. In the most profound irony is Christ was cursed so that we do not need to suffer anathema. Well, what does that mean? In the Old Testament, specifically Leviticus 16, there was a special day set apart for the nation of Israel that still celebrates today called the Day of Atonement. You might have heard of it as Yom Kippur. And during this day, the high priest of Israel enters into a part of the temple or tabernacle known as the most holy place in order to make a blood sacrifice on behalf of Israel's sins. This perfect unblemished animal is sacrificed on behalf of the people's sins in order to show that God's justified wrath is satisfied and that the people are in good standing with God. They do not need to suffer his judgment. But there's another animal involved, the animal that we refer to as the scapegoat. Upon this scapegoat, the high priest lays his hand on the back of the animal as a symbolic gesture that all the guilt and all the sins of Israel are now transferred to and born upon this scapegoat. And afterwards, this scapegoat is driven into the wilderness, outside the camp, away from God's people, away from God's blessings, from his pleasance, driven into the places where God's blessings do not reach. In Lighthouse, that's exactly what Christ does for us on the cross, that's exactly what Christ. What it means that Christ became our curse. At the cross, Christ not only satisfied God's justified wrath, but in his crucifixion, he bore all of our sin and guilt. By becoming our scapegoat and bearing all of our sin and, and guilt upon himself, as R.C. Sproul says, the most intense, dense concentration of evil ever experienced on this planet was exhibited. So what happened? Like the scapegoat of the Old Testament which is driven away from God, away from his presence, away from his face, away from his intimacy, away from his blessing. God removes all blessedness away from Christ. Why was Jesus not just crucified by the Jews, but delivered into the hands of Gentiles people who were historically outside of God's blessing? Why was he executed outside of the city gates of Jerusalem? Why was he crucified on a cross instead of being stoned to death? To become our curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He became our curse that we would not need to bear the weight of anathema. He became our curse so we could one day experience the ultimate blessing of seeing God face to face. Because of Jesus, the Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Church, we are tempted by false gospels. What brings good news to your heart might threaten to turn you away from a better hope. And yet, because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, we we do not have to bear the weight of anathema so we can turn to Christ. The burden is lifted so we can turn to Christ, our better hope. Well, how can we begin to do that? Well, to help you, I want us to consider these questions from Session One Smart Group Study Guide. Again, not all of what we mentioned is necessarily bad, but to help you consider if the, false, if the things that bring you good news have become false gospels that place us in danger of turning away from and deserting Christ, ask yourself these questions. What does it tell me to orient my life around? Does it move my heart toward eternal hope? Does it focus my attention more on what I need to do or on what Christ has done for me? Does it take you deeper into the true story of redemption or does it distort some feature of it? Does it allow you to see yourself and other believers as God sees them? And where does it tell you to turn to when you fail? Do you rely on God's mercies in Christ or something else? Church, we want to expose the false gospels, but it is always with the hope of opening our eyes to see the better hope that we have in Christ. And it's not just with regards to salvation. It affects everyday life. In Christ, I not only have salvation, but I have a blessed way of living. I have a better way of living. How so? When I'm tempted to answer the question, what brings good news to my heart? with answers like a forever home for my kids to grow up in? Enough money so that I know they'll be taken care of. I'm tempted to believe that the measure of a good father is one who leaves my children with a sizable inheritance. I'm tempted to believe the measure of a good father is one who can give my children a home with a backyard they can play in. I'm not only tempted to believe in that, but I'm also tempted to despair. I look back on what I did and how I've chosen to live with how I've chosen to live with crippling regret. I tell myself things like maybe I shouldn't have become a pastor. Along with that, I begin to focus all my attention on supplementing my income. Not that it's a bad thing, but doing so at the expense of my children and my wife. I start to get consumed with the various investing strategies instead of being invested with Jesus and the people in my life. I begin to hold back in terms of giving. Not inviting people over for meals. Not giving to the needs of our church or missions. All because I'm trying to save some more money. And when I begin to look at my, and then I begin to look at my life with a sense of frustration. Why didn't I do something different? I was naive and foolish to pursue ministry. By the way, I'm very blessed to be here, okay? I am so happy to be be here and I'm so privileged to be one of your pastors. You guys have loved me and my family more than I can ask. There's no place I would rather, I'd rather, I'd rather be or want to be. It's a major reason why in the summer of 2016, I was more than willing to make the decision to leave my former full-time pastoral role of four years to become a part-time intern for two more years here. Because I was, and I'm still convinced that this is the place and that you are the people that I want to raise my family with and journey with. Honestly, I tell the elders this all the time that if they were to ever fire me, guess what? I'm still coming here, Jason. It's gonna be pretty awkward for you, Ryan, but I'm still coming here. I can go on and on, but hopefully you see my point. But what if I instead, I began to believe that Christ is the best news for my heart? What if I believed that Christ was the better hope? I'd begin to believe that the measure of a good father, according to the Bible, is actually one that labors to give my children Jesus rather than an inheritance. I begin to believe that the measure of a good father according to God is actually one who wants to give my children heaven instead of a house. I'd find freedom from the enslavement of money. Money becomes just a tool to bless others. I begin to focus on the things that actually matter. I'd begin to focus on spending intentional time with my children instead of other pursuits because I want to have that relationship with them that I can show them Jesus consistently. I'd begin to value time more than money because I see how I can better leverage time as a means of showing Jesus both in how I live and what comes out of my mouth than I ever could with money. I'd give to those in need freely, invite people over more often to bless them because I desire for my children to see that according to Jesus, it truly is better to give than to receive. When I'm tempted with the belief that I could have made better choices that would place me and my children, my family, in a better financial position, the belief that Christ is a better hope leads me away from crippling regret toward a better trust in the sovereignty, goodness, and faithfulness of God through constant prayer. And when I find myself feeling anxious and I inevitably sin against my children in my anxiousness, I don't have to retreat to my room in shame as if I've irrevocably ruined our relationship. Instead, so I can ask them for forgiveness. Because by doing so, we move forward in our relationship, but we are also reminded, most importantly, that in that moment, as great of a sinner as our dad can be and is, Christ. A greater savior still. As 1 John 1.9 declares, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want my children to know that they never have to fear admitting wrong, admitting their sin, because Jesus is faithful and just to forgive. Church, this is what Paul wants so badly for his Galatian readers to know the blessing and experiences of a truer message and a better hope. And it's what we as your pastors want for you as well. So as a final charge to you, refuse false gospels. Treat them as anathema for the sake of your salvation and for the sake of Christ who became your curse so that you might one day know experience the blessings of God. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word and what it says to us. And Father, we need to hear this. I need to hear this. Because I know how I am tempted to believe in false gospels. Lord, would you forgive me for the times I've chosen to believe the whispers of false gospels compared to the true gospel. That gives me a better hope than I could ever dream, ever want, ever desire. Jesus, thank you that you are gracious, that you are kind. Oh Lord, would you help us to see and believe that your gospel is so much better. For Christ's sake we pray, amen.